He's told his disciples this. They had that intimate moment there in the upper room where they celebrated Passover the last time before Jesus is in the kingdom. They celebrate Passover. Jesus now institutes communion where they're remembering the body of Christ, the shed blood of Jesus. He prays for them. He gets up and washes their feet now. And he tells them that one of them is going to betray him. There's a little bit of a discussion among the disciples. Who's going to betray? Is it me? And finally, Judas leaves. It's interesting. I don't think the rest even saw him go out of the room. I don't think, I think the idea of Judas betraying Jesus was so far from their possibility in their mind that they didn't even see that he was the one. I think probably if we could flash back a few months before this night, we would identify Judas as maybe the most trustworthy of all of them. After all, he's the one that handled the money. Judas is the one who handled the money for them. They trusted him implicitly. They believed he was committed. And on this night, he would betray his Lord. So while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. I believe part of the the sweat of blood that Jesus was shedding earlier was because of these betrayals. Because He felt the pain of what would happen as He was betrayed. Here comes Judas, one of the twelve, and He's leading. He drew near to Jesus to kiss Him. And Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man With a kiss? It's almost like one last opportunity. Judas, one more chance here. Don't do it. And when those who were around saw what would follow, one of them shouted out, we know it was Peter, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And they pulled out their sword. And one of them, Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. He's not going to have this. No way. And he touched his ear and he healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who were all there, this large crowd of people who had come out against him. He said, if you come out against, as against a robber, if you come out against me in that way with swords and clubs, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay your hands on me. But this is your hour And the power of darkness. And then they seized him. And they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, he sat down together. Peter sat down among them. And then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it. He said, woman, I do not even know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. Peter said, man, I am not. 
And then, after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, because Jesus had told him he would deny. He told Peter, You will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And at that moment, see the picture in your mind's eye. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. Now he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. We have two men that are weeping in this passage. Three if you count Jesus from last week. But Judas and Peter... We know from the other accounts that Judas left here and in tears offered the money back to the chief priest. you know that? He goes back and says, I shouldn't have done this! And offers the money back to the chief priest. So we have tears here from Peter that are true tears of remorse and repentance. And we have, true, we have false tears of Judas there were really nothing more than an understanding that he had done something wrong and had regretted it, but there was no repentance in Judas' heart. But the thing I want to look at today primarily, I want to look at this idea of betrayal. I put Psalm 55 there on your worship notes. It talks about the pain that's associated with being betrayed. And the first sort of look that we're going to see here of betrayal is Jesus being betrayed by Judas... Through self-deception. Self-deception. We need to avoid this idea of deceiving ourselves. We ask the question, how in the world did this occur? How is Judas with Jesus all this time, and at the end, he betrays him? We see one of man's many problems. We are very capable of of deceiving ourselves. Now that's a danger. That's a real danger. It's one thing to deceive other people. It's one thing to make people think you're something that you aren't. It's a whole other category of problem when you can look yourself in the mirror and you can see the truth and walk away and deny what you saw. You ever been there? Have you ever been there? Well, see, the thing about self-deception is you don't even know it's going on. You don't even know it's happening until that moment. And maybe that moment might happen here with you today when God's Spirit pricks your heart. And just a moment, it's faint. It's a gentle whisper. And if you aren't careful, you can miss it. But God pricks your heart with a gentle whisper and says, be aware You may be deceiving yourselves. Let's look at the passage here. Let's look at the passage. Going back to verse 47. There came a crowd with Judas. They come at night, after this night of prayer, and Judas goes and gets them, and they come with clubs and swords. It's amazing what they're doing. I mean, Jesus has been in Jerusalem for a week, folks. Remember just... Six days prior to this, actually five days prior to this, Jesus comes in Jerusalem and they're celebrating. 
And now they come in cover of darkness. And what we see from this passage, the very end of this section is, it is the power of darkness that is happening here. This is Satan that is motivating all this. Judas has been indwelt by Satan at this moment, and there is a cosmic battle going on. This is not just Jesus modeling to us what it means to serve. This is not Jesus showing it is how horrible it is when someone is hurt by other people. That is not what the cross means. The cross of Christ is God the Creator being victorious over sin, over our flesh that wants to sin, and over every force that opposes Christ by these forces that have tried to come up with religious efforts to please God through man's work. But there is no hope of ever pleasing God. There is no system to ever please the Lord. There is only grace. And that's this cosmic battle going on here. And we see it played out. Judas arrives. Now it's interesting to see the other Gospels, what they have to say about this account. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four Gospels, all describing the life of Jesus, sharing details from different perspectives, and you can look at all of them together and see what happens. We know from Matthew that Jesus has already disclosed what Judas is doing. Jesus has already shared with Judas, I know you're going to betray me. And he goes, and he does it. Thirty pieces of silver... Now, that is a significant amount of money. You should know that. It's probably roughly about $10,000. Okay? It's amazing what we'll do. Who will betray for a few dollars? Who will betray what we will betray for an offer of joy, an offer of happiness? And something about this spoke to Judas. And so roughly about $10,000, he turned on Christ. Now we also know from Matthew that when Judas arrives with this crowd, he greets Jesus by saying, Greetings or hello, Rabbi, teacher. Now I think that reveals for us something about Judas. Judas believed that Jesus was a good guy. Judas believed that Jesus was a man of great potential. Could have done good things, could have done big things. But he did not see Jesus as the Messiah, as God in the flesh. Did not accept that. We must be very careful to realize Jesus is not a good teacher. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a man of God. That's not what he is. He is God in the flesh. Many have tried to deny that. Judas was living a denial of that. And Jesus asked him, you're going to betray me with a kiss? Now, I find it interesting that we see the power of Christ here. John paints this picture in John's Gospel, in John chapter 18. John describes that Jesus is there and and the crowd comes. Now, there are are guards there. They aren't Roman soldiers at this time. Okay, They're temple guards. The Jews were given permission to have these rough characters. They would have swords and clubs and spears and shields and all that kind of stuff. Okay? But they're temple guards. They're big, tough guys. And they come there to arrest Jesus. The Romans have given the Jews the authority to kind of run things in the temple. And so they show up to arrest Jesus. 
And they say to Jesus, are you Christ? And Jesus answers this way. John 18 says that he answers this way. Ego eme. And that means I, I am, is what Jesus says. I, he uses the pronoun I, I, I am. Now the word I am is the name that God revealed to Moses. Clear back in Exodus chapter 3. His name is the I am. And so when Jesus said, I, I am, you know what happened? The temple guards fell down on the ground, passed out. And the word means they did this. Boom. On the ground, now. So awesome. I want you to know something. At no moment in this whole account... From now to Easter, we're going to work on the crucifixion of Christ. We're going to move towards the cross between now and Easter. And you need to know, every moment Jesus was in charge of, this thing never flew out of his control. He never, this thing never slipped out of his hands. And the whole time he had you and me and the church on his mind. And the gift of grace the gift of grace that he was purchasing and bringing to his church and bringing to believers. And that gift cost him everything. And it cost us nothing. That's grace. That's grace. Not only do we see in John 18 that he's in control, but even in Luke we see it's in, that he is in control. This, Peter whips out this sword, okay? Cuts off an ear. And Jesus at that moment, can you just picture this? Now swords in that day, listen, all the movies, they're wrong, okay? They're not swinging this sword and, you know, arms just flying off. That's not how it works. These things are like blunt instruments, okay? But he whacks this guy across the head and somehow a chunk of his ear or something flies off and Jesus, the creator of everything, puts it back on. It's just amazing. And folks, it's true. This is truth. So in that moment we see this thing was never outside of God's control. But what I want to look at now is the danger, the Judas danger, the danger of self-deception. And I want to challenge us on this because we need to recognize this truth. Apart from the grace of God, I could betray Christ. So could you. And what we need to do is we, we need the we need the mirror of God right now to evaluate our hearts. And we need to see, is there any element of self-deception like that of Judas in our life? So let's just walk through this quickly and, and see, are we being deceived? You see this throughout the New Testament. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be misled. Do not be deceived. I got six times that the authors of the New Testament commented that it is very capable for us to be self-deceived. 
You and I can believe something about ourselves that isn't true. Let's look at one so you see what I'm talking about. Go first of all, keep your finger here, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, I'm going to move around in Scripture a little bit today. We don't always do that, but we are going to today. We're going to land on this concept, first of all, of being self-deceived. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It, there's an interesting verse here, and it warns us about the first type of self-deception that I think we need to be aware of. We need to be aware of. It's in verse number 18. We're not going to turn to every single one of these for sake of time, but I want to land at this one. I want to land at this one because it will be a model for us to see God's warning to us about self-deception. Verse number 18, it says this, Let no one deceive himself. Understand, this passage is being written to the church. It's being written to believers. And it says, Let no one deceive himself. So we already understand this is possible. I can deceive myself. I can believe something is true of me that isn't. I can believe something is false of me that isn't. I can be self-deceived. And then Paul says, if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. The first and the model for us of self-deception is being deceived by our own wisdom or knowledge. There's a funny thing about us and God. 1 Corinthians 8 says that knowledge puffs up. You know that? Now, you're at Centerpoint Bible Church. We preach the Bible, right? We point people to Jesus Christ in His Word. But there's a warning associated with that. And that is that there is a self-deception that comes from the input of knowledge without practice. And so the author here warns us that if you think you're wise in this age, if you think you've got things figured out, If you think you've got it, you know, I understand how this stuff works. You need to be aware. That's a step towards being self-deceived. You see, Judas knew Christ. Now, he didn't know Him intimately, but he knew all about Him. I think he probably could outline some of his sermons. I think he probably had much of the Old Testament memorized. I I think he looked like a guy with great knowledge. But there is a warning here that knowledge alone is dangerous. I tell you, I've seen people this way. I've seen people who have a wealth of knowledge That quite honestly, they could dance around me when it comes to their theological understanding. They might have more scripture memorized than anybody in the room. They might have more letters after their name than anybody you could ever find, right? But the truth is, they have in their self-deception moved away from their knowledge of God and their self-deceived And what Scripture is warning us about is they need to become like a fool. Now, what's a fool? A fool is an empty-headed person. 
an empty-headed person. What this is showing us is that there is a value, there is a value to understanding how far you and I need to go. You know, I find it very refreshing when I'm around the person who is like newly saved or they're newly in love with Christ. You ever met these kind of people? And they're just, they're so excited. And they come up and they're like, can I show you something I just read from God's Word? I was just reading God's Bible the other day. I was just listening to this sermon the other day. And this idea came. I was just listening to this song and it struck me. And often I walk away and I'm like, man, I want that. I want that. I'm reminded of David's words when he said, Psalm 51, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Judas was deceived. And the first thing we see as we walk through Scripture is we can be deceived by our own wisdom, our own knowledge. Just going along a little bit more, I want to just hit all these. We won't take the time to look at them all in Scripture. But I want you to see next in Galatians 6, we can be deceived by our own righteousness. In this passage, there is a, there is a person that's involved in sin and somebody else is coming to confront them and say, your sin is wrong, you should turn, and we all should do that for one another. We should do that. We should go to people who have sin in their life and confront them to come back to Christ for their own good out of love. But then it says, be careful. Be careful. Matter of fact, it says, if you think you're something when you are nothing, you deceive yourself. The next one is denying our call to respond to God. This is from James I'll just read it to you. It says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, so deceiving yourselves. 1 Corinthians 15, When you deny how easily you are misled, listen to what it says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Claiming to have no sin, this is 1 John 1 8, says, If we, have no, if we say we have no sin, we, de- we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. In James 1.26, when we cover our own sin, it says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his own tongue, he deceives his heart. Folks, we've got to wake up. We have an enemy. We see him in the garden. It says at the end there that the power of darkness is at, is at play here. And Satan's chief method of working in our lives is to masquerade, to put on an act, to allow us to believe something that is false. And the thing we're driving at today is the idea of being self-deceived. And the only hope for a self-deceived person, the only hope is the Spirit of God. Because here's the truth. When you're self-deceived, that means all the time, all the time, like an elevator music playing in the background is the lie whispering into your own ear, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. And God's Spirit is quiet. And he says, don't be deceived. 
hear the Spirit of God. At the end of of self-deception is destruction. Go to Matthew chapter 27. Let's see the end of Judas' life here. Matthew chapter 27. Look what happens here at the end. Verse 3. Then when Judas, chapter 27 of Matthew, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. That is a very important phrase. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders. And he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it to yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went out and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them in the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. And that's where Judas fell to his death and was buried. You see, when deceived by ourself, we move towards destruction. We're listening to our own voice, drowning out the voice of God. But if we would just wake up and look at the fruit around, the believer, the fruit in their life will indicate to them they're moving in the wrong direction. They're moving in the wrong direction. Look at the fruit of Judas' life as he ends in destruction and death, and ultimately, eternal death. You say, well, I thought he turned. I mean, it says there that he changed his mind. What we're looking for, what we'd like to see in his life, is what 2 Corinthians calls godly sorrow. Let me read this for you. Paul writes, If I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you. As it is, I rejoice because you were grieved. But because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. So you suffered no loss. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Listen, today you may be grieving over sin, and that's good. That's good. But don't betray Christ and stop there. Let it be godly grief. Godly grief that says, Lord, I know I've sinned against you and only you. Judas never mentions sinning against God. He never mentions sinning against the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I sinned against an innocent man, but never God. Godly grief leads to repentance. Let's see that at play. Go back now to Luke chapter 22, and let's see godly grief quickly here. Now we look at Peter. Now, Peter ends in tears. Okay? When we're done this passage, we're going to see Peter weeping. But I want you to see... 
Yes, he betrayed. He did. But he turned. And Peter's betrayer was a little different. His was from self-confidence. Let's look at it. Verse 54. They seized him, led him away, brought him into the high priest's house. Jesus is going to be tried six times. Six times this night in just a matter of hours. Okay? Six times. First, in front of Caiaphas. Then Annas. And then the chief priest. That's not that. They really don't get what they want there. They find him guilty, but they can't kill him. So they say, the only way we can kill him is if we take him to the Romans. So now they bring him to Pilate. Pilate deals with him. He doesn't want to put him, put him to death. So he sends him back to Herod. Herod deals with him. Herod doesn't want to kill him either. So he sends him back to Pilate. He goes back to Pilate now. Pilate, trying to get out of it, really does a seventh trial in some ways and brings Jesus now before the whole crowd of Jerusalem and says, what shall I do with this man? And you know what we shouted? Crucify. 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 So we see Peter here in the middle of of these trials. Verse 54. He's in the courtyard. He's following at a distance. He's just far enough back that he can see what's going on. We know from the other Gospels that John knew the high priest. So John got him in there. Okay? And they're there watching this spectacle play itself out. In verse 56, a servant girl comes along. She says, aren't you a follower of Jesus? He says, no way, woman, get out of my face. Next, it seems that Peter is trying to leave. And as he goes out, he bumps into somebody else. says, you were one of them, right? No, he says, I'm not. And then the third denial is this one guy comes. This is down in verse number uh, 59. says, you're a Galilean. Why are you here? You're from Galilee. You must be a follower of Jesus. Because Jesus is from Galilee, so you must be a follower of Him. And now Peter, in his desperate act of betrayal, verse, chapter uh, 26 of Matthew tells us that he actually cursed the man. Cursed the man. I don't even know him. Icing on the top. Blankety blank blank, Right? You ever seen people do that? Just to make everybody sure that they know they're cool, they throw out a word there or here. Just to, just to demonstrate you know, that they got what it takes or whatever. That's what Peter does. And at that moment, the eyes of Jesus and the eyes of Peter meet. Betrayed. Why? Because Peter wasn't so much deceived Although in some ways he was. Peter's problem was this. He thought he was beyond deception. Peter thought he was beyond it. Judas was deceived and clueless. Peter thought he was beyond deception. I can't fall. I'll go to prison. I'll even die for you. I'm with you, Jesus, to the end. Remember? And down he went. Now, I've got to show you where Peter goes. And we've got to see why. Go in your Bible. Go to Acts. Okay? Go with me to Acts chapter 3. I want you to see 
who this man who's weeping with Christ seeing him as he runs away and he weeps after betraying Christ. I want you to see what he becomes. Chapter 3 of Acts, verse number 12 says this. And when Peter saw all that was going on, as, as he's being told not to preach Christ, Peter stands up and he addresses the very people who crucified Christ. And he says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? They just healed this guy. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one. What is the difference? How does a man go from whimpering in the corner? <laughs> I denied my Lord to this kind of a exhibition of power. The difference is in the Spirit of God. The difference is in Peter's understanding of need. The difference is in his absolute dependence. Peter saw in his failure, he saw in his failure that he needed Christ. Not needed Christ just to get him to heaven. Not needed Christ just to take away his sins. He needed Christ for everything. And so by the time he got to Acts chapter 3, just over 50 days later, he's depending upon the Spirit of God and God used him to set the world on fire. But it all came back to a man who was dependent. A dependent man. And it's not Peter. It's Jesus. Go back to Luke chapter 22. You say, go ahead and skip me two slides. I didn't have time for that. Luke chapter 22. You know, Peter overcame his betrayal. And I ask, how do we overcome betrayal? I mean, how do we... How do we get through this? How do, we, how do we overcome the temptation to betray? How do we overcome the feeling of betrayal? You go back to Christ. Closing with this. Luke chapter 22. Look at verse 41. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And He knelt down and He prayed. Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There is the power to overcome betrayal. Yours and others. It is living out such radical dependence upon Christ that we can honestly 
pray to God, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray to Him. Lord Jesus, we have two men who betrayed. Lord, and in them we might see ourselves. Lord, I pray for anybody here that is struggling. Lord, maybe you've prodded their heart today that they've been living self-deceived. God, would you bring them to repentance, true repentance. Lord, you forgive. You give new opportunity. It's new every morning. Or Lord, maybe we're like Peter. And we think we're beyond even being self-deceived. We're self-confident, self-reliant. God, protect us from that trap as well. Maybe look to Christ, our example, our Savior, our Advocate, and pray a prayer that echoes His. So Lord, we pray now, not our will, not our will. Our will can't be trusted. Our will wants for us. But Lord, Your will be done in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.